You're listening to City Beat, the weekly podcast from UrbanMilwaukee.com. Today we are joined by author, historian, and baseball aficionado Matthew Prege. We will discuss his new book on the Newhall House fire, why he's so interested in Milwaukee's less glamorous history, and who his favorite Milwaukee brewer of all time is. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. Welcome to City Beat. Well, thanks for having me. Before we go any further, I want to make sure we get the full title out there, lest I forget. Your new book is Damn the Old Tinderbox, The Gilded Age Fire That Shocked America. And it was published, actually, it's coming out just in a week or two, right? Uh, it came out a couple weeks ago. We had a okay. launch at uh, Boswell. Okay, excellent. March 19th now, which is occurring to me we're talking in April and time is flying by yeah, me yeah, real quick. Really. <laughs> uh, it was published by the Wisconsin Historical Society. Let's assume I know nothing about the Newhall House fire. Uh, set the stage for us. Okay. Well, the Newhall was a, a luxury hotel that was built in Milwaukee in 1857 as uh, really to kind of be a landmark for the city. This was something that was supposed to uh, help them keep pace with Chicago as uh, these two, what was at that time considered the American West as these two cities developed. But uh, it, it never really did great business. There were some... Uh, some issues along the way actually closed down for a while in the 1870s and by the 18 early 1880s it was uh, just kind of another uh, hotel in the city and on a night in january 1883 it caught fire and where in milwaukee are we talking uh, we're talking about uh, downtown the corner of what is today uh, broadway in michigan there's a hilton hotel there now the old um uh, the old loyalty building okay and I guess talk about this fire. Why is it? I mean, I'm sure more than one hotel in Milwaukee's history caught fire. Why is this one significant? Uh, well, this was uh, up until the 1940s. This is actually the deadliest hotel fire in U.S. history, and still remains one of the the deadliest hotel fires in U.S. history. Uh, about 70 or 75 uh, people lost their lives in the blaze, and it took uh, about 45 minutes for the whole thing to play out. And what I, I believe there was a a strategic error, I guess, in the hotel's part? Did they fail to do something? Uh, well, there were quite a few errors, actually, both on the part of the, uh, with the hotel itself and just with the how the city approached the, the danger of fire at the time. There really were no fire codes to speak of um, in 1883. The fire department was, um, it was undermanned. They had a lot of equipment that they couldn't properly use because they didn't have the manpower to do so. And just in the way buildings were designed at that time, a lot of them were, were fire traps. Uh, most of them probably would have been considered fire traps. But uh, in the New Hall specifically, uh, they had installed an elevator in the 1870s. And the uh, uh, elevator design at that time, they had it that the, uh, on the roof of the building, there were uh, air vents at the top of the elevator shaft. So on a cold night like the, uh, the one in question, uh, there's a fire that got, the fire got started at the, in the basement at the bottom of the elevator shaft. And with the, uh, the cold air outside and the warmer inside that drew everything right up the elevator shaft. And it pretty much acted like a, a flue or a chimney to help distribute that fire all, the, all throughout the, the, uh, the hotel. Is, was that a design that is common to many hotels of that era? Or is that something that the new hall, you know, this, bizarre set of circumstances really set the stage for tragedy. No, it was actually pretty common at the time. In fact, uh, in research I was doing 
uh, beyond just the Newhall house, there was an account of uh, a fire. I believe it was in New York City. Uh, I think it was in the 1890s. And the uh, sort of the gallows humor of the newspapers at the time said that uh, it was... That fire was in one way a good thing because it now meant that most of the buildings that utilized this elevator design had already burned down. <laughs> All right, that's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, well, what led, I guess what, this is an obviously a tragic incident in Milwaukee's history. It's a significant incident in Milwaukee and I guess America's history. Mm-hmm. When and what inspired you to cover it though, to go into great detail on it? Uh, well, in 2015, I published a book also with the Wisconsin Historical Society Press called Milwaukee Mayhem, which was a collection of these uh, sort of strange and bizarre and often gruesome stories from the city's history. And the New Hall House was one of those. It was actually of the 80 or so stories that were in there. It was probably the best well-known of those, because if you pick up uh, you know, the making of Milwaukee or any other standard history of the city, they're going to mention the New Hall House. I mean, people are somewhat aware of it. But um, just in doing a little bit of research for that first story, which is a few thousand words, uh, I really got interested in it. I found that there was a lot of extra, uh, a lot of material out there on the fire that hadn't necessarily been used. And once I started researching it with the idea of, of maybe doing a book, um, I found out that a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the short but common narrative of the, the story wasn't exactly accurate. And were there, cele- I guess, one thing I kind of remembering, there was a celebrity there, right? Yes, uh, yeah, General Tom Thumb, who was um, made famous by P.T. Barnum, uh, I think, uh, beginning uh, 1850s, really. He was a little person, and he was a performer, and uh, he became a real you know, kind of a novelty act, uh, both here and in Europe, actually. Uh, you know, I've seen it written some in some places. He's considered to be one of the first modern celebrities. And uh, he was near the end of his uh, career at that time. But, yeah, he was, he was still touring. He was uh, staying at the Newhall House with his, his uh, performing troupe, which had a few other small, uh, little person performers in it. And uh, him and his wife were staying in really the, the premier suite of the hotel on the, on the second level. And they escaped uh, down a ladder off of the, the balcony. So most of the people that perished in the fire, were they on the upper levels of the hotel or were they kind of spread all around? Is there a certain area that was, you know, we now know design standard wise is a bad way to design a hotel? Yeah, the uh, the death toll definitely was higher, uh, the higher up you were in the hotel. The way the fire started uh, running up the elevator shaft, like I mentioned, really the first... Um, other than the elevator car itself, the first real resistance it hit was the, the roof. And so it burned up and then kind of burned back down, if you will. And I'm, you know, there's no real way of knowing this, but if I had to guess, the, uh, the people on the sixth floor, the top floor of the hotel were probably some of the, the first to perish. And um, yeah, the higher up you were in the hotel, the harder it would have been to get out. So yeah, sixth floor was very bad. Fifth floor was very bad. Uh, the second floor, which was the the first floor of the the hotel, uh, the lobby floor, they called it. Uh, everybody who was staying there got out, but from the third floor up, it was it was pretty bad. And who were these people that were were they employees? Were they long term residents or were they short term guests? Uh, it was a, it was a good mixture. Um, there were no uh, other than a few people where I really weren't able to track down their reasons for being in the city. You know, this was right after right after Christmas. Right after we're talking January tenth, so right after Christmas, after New Year's, there's really nobody traveling. Uh, fortunately, the hotel was only about a third full uh, at the time of the fire. So had it happened a few weeks earlier, it actually could have been much worse. But uh, most of the people, the travelers staying in the hotel were traveling, uh, traveling salesmen, traveling agents. Um, there were, I believe, about 25 uh, full-time residents 
of the hotel, and then about 75 uh, live-in employees. Most of those were the uh, women who worked at the hotel, what they would have called the, the domestic workers, living on the, on the fifth floor uh, on the side of the hotel that faced out in the, uh, the alley that's uh, still there if you go from um, Water Street to, to Broadway, that alley that runs north from there was the alley that ran just along the west side of the Newhall House. We're talking if I'm at the Swinging Door restaurant, I can look out that alley yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. And I guess what's that's a good question. What is there today to kind of reflect that this tragedy took place? It's a Hilton Garden Inn now, completely new building. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, foot, yeah, that, uh, the, the Hilton, that building, was built pretty much right into the footprint of the old Newhall House. So the building uh, to the north was there, the old uh, Marble Hall. I can't remember what it is now, but it was uh, for many years the... Uh, you know, a very, it was really the, the smoke-filled room where Milwaukee's political lives were made and ruined. Uh, that's still there. The buildings just across the alley, um, or the ones on the, the two on the corner there, were, uh, were standing when the hotel burned. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce building and Mitchell buildings across the street, those were there. And if you go, go into that alley, you can actually see on the, uh, the, the Cream City brick of what was the uh, Milwaukee Insurance building just across the alley. It's still uh, blackened in a way that suggests that might have been uh, actually from the fire. Interesting. Is there anything else that you uncovered in Milwaukee's modern history that connects us back to the Newhall House? Um, well, just, you know, it's, uh, with the, the physical site there, um, you know, like I said, the alley is still, you know, it's still a pretty grim reminder of uh, what happened there. And actually that uh, insurance building that I mentioned, uh, there was a, uh, you'd call it now a skywalk, but it was a, a bridge that went over the alley. So those buildings were actually connected uh, when they burn down. And there are a few uh, mementos. I think the public museum has uh, a key and um, something else that had been found in the, uh, the ruins of the fire afterwards. And I've been, you know, since I started this project about four years ago now, I've been kind of on the lookout for things on uh, eBay and stuff like that. So since then, I bought some uh, mementos uh, that were printed after the fire and actually a sheet of uh, the cover of a medical journal that has handwritten that it was recovered from the, uh, the huh. fire. Yeah. And you mentioned a skywalk. That's interesting to me. Why didn't people <coughs> just, you know, walk to the other building, out of the one to the other? Well, it's hard to, you really got to put yourself in, in the place. Again, as I said, this whole thing, uh, literally from the beginning of the, uh, from the discovery of the, the smoke to the moment when the last person was out of the house, it was about 45 minutes. Um, and most of the people who would have woken up um, you know, 10 to 15 minutes into this would have had a very short period of time to really, you know, assess the situation, try and figure out what was going on. That uh, the, the bridge that I mentioned was on, uh, it was on the, there was a third floor bridge and a, and a fifth floor bridge. And that fifth floor, again, where the, all the, uh, the domestic, uh, the women who worked in the hotel slept. Uh, that would have been just down the, just around the corner from their, their hallway. But with the, uh, the view they had, uh, generally waking up, you know, again, 10, 15 minutes into the fire, uh, looking out those windows with, the, with the, the powerful glow of the fire and the reflection of everything, it would have probably looked like that whole corner of the, the block was on fire. And I don't know if it would have immediately been triggered in their minds that, that there was this way out. It would have looked uh, very, very helpless at the time. And we're talking about an era in which there isn't illuminated exit signs right, all right, throughout right. the quarters. Do we have a sense of what fire proofing they did have? Well, there were, and there had been fires at the hotel before, and um, 
I get the idea that the the the, uh, the people who ran the hotel actually kind of went above and beyond what was expected of them or required of them by law, which was again pretty much nothing. Uh, one of the methods they had for fighting fire were uh, buckets of water in the the hallways um, that were filled up regularly. That if something had caught fire, that you could use quickly as a way to extinguish it. Uh, there were fire hoses in the building, but they'd been they were hung on hooks, and I guess that in, they'd been hanging there so long they'd kind of dried out and couldn't really be, you know, they needed. There's uh, very early on one of the uh, the man runs the boiler at the new hall. He's in the basement. And he's trying to 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 fight the fire, and he's he gets hung up again trying to untangle this, uh, flatten out this hose that's been hanging on this hook for years. Uh, but there was no central alarm system. There were fire escapes, but there was no indication in the house of, of where they were located. And even in, you know, reading the uh, the survivor accounts, there were people who who knew about this stuff. There were, I mean, fire was a it was a constant threat then, so people were aware of it. And there were people who had lived there who'd always, you know, made up their mind that, oh, and if there's ever a fire, I know exactly where the fire escape is, I know how to get to it. But once they actually woke up with the hallway full of smoke, they just either weren't able to find it or they're too panicked to, to think to get there. Well, what did the, I guess my question in, in the context now, I didn't realize it happened really within 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. What was the fire department's response? We're talking the middle of the night, 4 a.m. or, you know, sunrises. I guess in January is a ways off still, yeah, but yeah. we'll assume most people were soundly asleep and mm -hmm. then the fire department's rushing there. What, I guess, did they do? What worked? What didn't? Well, uh, the fire department, one of the things that I point out in the book was that uh, just before the the New Hall bell went in about fifth, yeah, about half an hour, 20 minutes before, there was a fire out on the uh, the west side of town and it was just a, a fire. It was um, Somebody had a, a shack for smoking meat behind their house, and that caught on fire. So it wasn't a very big fire. But uh, doing the math between the, the capabilities of the fire department in 1883 and then the number of uh, uh, companies that had gone out to fight that fire, about a third of the city fire department was uh, on call at this tiny little fire that took five minutes to, pu uh, to put out. And that didn't really directly affect the response to the new hall, but I, I think it does a good uh, job of illustrating just how stretched thin the fire department could be at any time. And the, uh, the nearest firehouse to the, the new hall was, um, it's actually still a firehouse just up uh, uh, Broadway. And <clears throat> I mean, you can get from the firehouse to the new hall in you know, two or three minutes, really. But by the time they got there, uh, again, the fire is already burning through the roof. They, as they're heading there, they can see the fire reflecting off of the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce building across the street. So by the time they get there, uh, they send a few guys inside and they observe the, you know, the, what is now an inferno in the elevator shaft. And they decide at that moment that they're not going to do any uh, firefighting from inside the building. It's all going to be done from outside. And also they, and this was true of the people who worked there too, the fire department didn't uh, do anything to wake up the people who were in the house. By the time they assess the situation. There are already people at their windows screaming for help. So those are the, that's what they, uh, they chose to, to uh, address first. And what was the, I guess, what was the technology of the day to get people out of the building from the upper <laughs> floors? Uh, ladders, basically. Um, and that was an issue, too. Uh, if you look at an old picture of, there's a number of pictures of the new hall from you know, right around 1880. And uh, it being 
you know, a hotel where a lot of business was done, a lot of business people stayed. They had uh, quite a bit of uh, equipment for telegraph set up there. So on that corner, uh, Broadway in Michigan, there are these very large and intrusive telegraph poles with, um, I don't know how many, the 36, I think, cables spread out like a, you know telephone wires or well, I guess electric wires now would be uh, today. So with those um, on the right near the, the curb on the sidewalk to get a ladder, to put a ladder up, a uh, rigid ladder up to the hotel was pretty difficult. And also the just the design of the building didn't really help out either. Uh, there was a balcony that ran along the, the Broadway side. The windows were very deep set. They had very uh, decorative uh, window caps and window sills. So just maneuvering a ladder to get it to a window uh, was tricky. And they ended up actually running a ladder up to the balcony and using that to try to get to the windows. Then other ladders that uh, went from the balcony to the sidewalk. And this was uh, you know, it was very dependent on the, the length of the ladders. Uh, they could really only reach one window at a time. So this is all very uh, slow going. And with a fast-moving fire, obviously tragedy ensued. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, some of the people, again, you know, survivor accounts, uh, accounts of, uh, witness accounts of people who didn't survive. There were people waiting in windows who just decided that they, they couldn't wait for the, the ladder to move down to their side of the building. So uh, not that long after the fire department gets there, people just start to jump. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you've, you've mentioned survivor accounts now a couple times. I assume, uh, I guess I know that you uh, are a regular reader of newspaper archives, but where mm -hmm. else are you finding this information? Uh, my big resource was uh, downtown at the County Historical Society. They have the um, coroner's inquest into this fire. So it's about a thousand pages of uh, transcripts of the, the coroner's investigation into how this started. So he talks to uh, pretty much anyone with a story to tell who was a, a survivor um, fire department members, police department members, um, witnesses who happen to be there, employees of the house, uh, you know, anybody who was around, they, they talk to and they, they put their story down. And what physical, is this still a thousand page paper document that's from the 1800s or has it been modernized? Somehow? Well, uh, actually what I looked at was photocopies, I believe. Uh, this was a while ago now, but, uh, yeah, it's all still there. Some of it's typed up. Some of it is written in that impossible script of the 1880s. Okay, so this isn't something that you can say, oh, here's this name, and I can search and see all the records the Milwaukee County Historical Society has. Yeah, and no, I really had to, I had to go there and sit and, and type it up as I, I read it, so it was, yeah, something was kind of tedious. Well, now it sounds like you've done this. You did it with Milwaukee Mayhem. You've mm -hmm. done it with your new New Hollis book. You also wrote a book, and I want to get the title correctly, Outlaws, Rebels, and Vixens, about Milwaukee's history of film censorship. Yeah, yeah. What inspires you to keep doing this? <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I always just, I would, you know, this whole thing started out just browsing old newspapers and, you know, I'd be researching something else and I'd see some weird headline and start pulling on threads and, yeah, sometimes, you know, if it went anywhere, sometimes I'd get a story out of it or a book out of it. And it's just, you know, you gotta, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of hide and seek really. And is there a story you've wanted to chase further and you just kind of hit a dead end? Um, yeah, well, when I, when I got done with the Mayhem book, um, I was trying to figure out what to do next, and there was a couple other murder stories that I was sort of interested in pursuing uh, at full length, and just, you know, when you, when you do a book like this, you really got to, you get to count on maybe the first few months of research possibly going nowhere, and that's, 
you know, I've hit dead ends like that before, and if there's just nothing, you got to know when to cut bait and, and move on to something else, too. Well, what are you working on today? I know you have an essay and a book that's about to come out, Milwaukee Noir. Yeah, I got a, I actually uh, went back and did a little fiction for, uh, for that. It's a collection of uh, short noir stories. Um, I think there's 20-some of them in the book. And, uh, yeah, it comes out next month. I've got my copy already, and I'm, I'm going through that. And there's some really fun stuff in there, so... I don't know, I'm thinking of expanding uh, that story into a, a full-length novel just to try that for a, a change of pace. And this is entirely fiction, but I assume with you it's based a lot on reality of what the day was. Yeah, yeah, my story covers uh, uh, a movie theater down on 3rd Street that some people might have heard of or uh, possibly remember the old uh, Princess Theater, which was uh, built in the... I think it built 1909, and by the, uh, the fi- late 50s on into the 60s, it was an adults-only theater running uh, low-grade smut films, and I kind of wanted to get into that world, and I've, I've written on that uh, uh, a bit uh, in the past as well, talking to some of the actual people who did this in Milwaukee, and it was just always kind of a fascinating, fascinating chapter to me, so is I might there, look at that for a while. Is there a logical intersection between that kind of film universe and Milwaukee's, the mayhem history that you've covered? <laughs> Do they overlap at some point? Um, yeah, well, kind of. I get that whole area of, uh, north of Wisconsin Avenue, downtown, that, uh, district by the river, kind of where the, the new arena is right now. That was, for a long, long time, that was, uh, known as the Badlands, which was, uh, you know, if it was 1890 and you wanted to see a, a dog fight or go buy opium or visit a brothel, you'd go. All things that's, I do every Friday night. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly, uh, where'd you go, where you'd go, and it was... Uh, the the death of all this was really you know started in the 1970s and on through the the 80s was the uh, you know the the Henry Meyer renewal projects downtown with the uh, uh, the yeah the Hyatt Hotel with the the revolving restaurant that was a very big deal when it opened and the mall was kind of like the the thing that really you know people were oh, we can't have this going on downtown we have a mall now I remember <laughs> uh, the the princess one of the concessions they made was they stopped putting the uh, the titles of their movies on the marquee that just said adult theater or XXX movies or whatever it said but you know you could um, the princess is right next to the, the old hotel Wisconsin so literally if you step out of the the front door well they're redoing it all now but the the front uh, the front door of the old uh, shops at Grand Avenue you would see the the princess theater you know, half a block down. So uh, the mall really chased all it, you know, brought up the civic pride that made people want to, you know, change their ways in downtown, I guess. And the Princess Theater has <coughs> since been demolished. It was at Old World Third and Wells, right? Faced Old World Third. Yeah, yeah. And if you had an interest in doing a kind of history on that, or has, I think it's Larry Walden, why didn't yeah, has, has he sufficiently um, covered our cinema history? Yeah, the theaters have been, uh, there was uh, him and... I'm going to forget his name now. He's, he's uh, since passed away, but um, there's a, the Cinema Treasures website is... It's a fascinating yeah, website. Yeah, yeah, and that's... There are... Oh, I wish I could... I wish I could remember his name. There's people who are listening. They've, if, they've, if they know Larry Wyden's work or know the, uh, the, the site, they, they probably know the name, but he's yeah, basically written you know, a short essay on every theater, you know, any significant theater that was uh, in Milwaukee. And... Uh, just the, the interest in that kind of got me into the the history of the uh, the censor board, so you know it's a lot of jumping off points, and you just try to find something 
something weird that other people haven't looked at. And yeah, it was the history of the movie theaters that kind of got me into the uh, looking at the adult theater thing, which a lot of the people who are, are really into theaters and preservation, they look at this as this kind of you know black hole of theater history where they had to do this to survive, and it was the you know the ignoble end to all these grand theaters. But to me, that's really the most interesting part of any theater's life when it's still you know it would today be considered a, a, a historic building, and they're running you know whatever they ran in those days. Well, where if people are interested in learning more about any of your three books or any other writing you're up to, where should they be going? Yeah, to um, I try to keep uh, up with my. I have a personal website, MatthewJPriggy.com, um, or if you just Google my name, that's usually the first thing that comes up for the uh, the Tinderbox book uh, that has a site up too called DamnTheOldTinderbox.com, all one word, and that'll have information about upcoming events and everything else on it. And we'll post a link to that on Urban Milwaukee when we share the article or when we share the podcast. Uh, I assume the books are available at good bookstores everywhere and maybe even some bad ones. Yeah, probably uh, across the gamut. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get to the important stuff. Uh, Baseball season is underway. Yes. I know you went to opening day. You have quite the tradition there, I learned, via Twitter. Yeah, uh, 28 years in a row now with me and my my old man. That is impressive. Uh, What is your prediction for the Brewers this year? Oh, I, I feel really good about this season. Um, they're looking real sharp. I think they've got flexibility to add uh, down the as the uh, down into the stretch. Um, I'm just, you know, for anybody like me, I'm just worried about my own personal health because I'm I've just carried over <laughs> everything from last season. I'm so white knuckled watching all these games, and it's only April second. So, so you are at Tommy John risk as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need to have something replaced by the time the end of the season comes. And, that's for sure. And what do you think about the bullpen? Do they have enough there? There's been some injuries. Are they adding up too early? I don't know. Uh, you know, I I feel so confident in David Stearns now. I'm like, if there's guys that he goes out and gets, I'm I'm confident he sees something there that uh. It's uh, worth giving a shot. Uh, Matt Albers has looked good so far. and I mean, he was, if you ignore last year, he had a pretty good track record, too. And, of course, Hayter's been immaculate. And Jeffress hopefully be back in a couple weeks. And maybe uh, Craig Kimbrell will show up, too. That would be nice. Much to the rejoice of Brewers Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who is your favorite brewer of all time? <sighs> of all time? Um well, well, let's maybe start here. Who's okay. your favorite brewer on the team today? Uh, is that an easier question? Yeah, my guy now is still Ryan Braun. Um, this is a surprising pick. Yeah, he just he gets booed on the road still. He was I was watching last night. He was, you know, the only time the crowd in Cincinnati seemed to pay attention is when he came up just to boo him, and then he hit all that f- double and all five thousand of them that yeah. were in attendance. <laughs> So, yeah, Bronny's my guy right now. Of course, it's, I mean, I, I really love watching Jeremy Jeffress pitch. He's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, Christian Yelich, obviously, is, you know, doing otherworldly things right now, too. See, I've always taken it to the guys that are underachievers in life mm, that, okay. like, should be better. <laughs> Bill Hall, he was my guy. Ricky Weeks, couldn't get better than that. Lyle Overbay, couldn't oh, hit a home yeah. run. Those were my guys. Uh, so do you have a favorite brewer of all time, or am I asking, like, picking your favorite child? Oh, it's, I mean, Henry Aaron I'd have to go to as a default just because he's one of my favorite, you know, baseball people ever. But uh, if I had to pick one that would be uh, kind of obscure, I think I'll go with Keon Broxton. He was he was a lot of fun to watch. And he was a brewer for all of, did we even get three years of Keon Broxton in Milwaukee? I think he had three years, yeah, if I remember right. All right. And with that, I guess one important question, because you kind of tilted you like Ryan Braun. <laughs> As a historian, what's your take on like Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds getting into the Hall of Fame? 
yeah, I, I go with the, uh, you know, the idea that you can't tell the story of baseball without these guys. So I, I'd, I'd lean towards putting them in, maybe with a little discretion based on, uh, you know, what they might have done if they were playing uh, clean, if you want to say that. But, I mean, I don't know how you keep Barry Bonds out of the Hall of Fame. Fair enough. And we have about one minute left. What is your underrated Milwaukee restaurant or bar that people should be patronizing? More? Uh, you know, Champions Pub on uh, Bartlett is uh it's a fun place they got a nice patio in the back um it's really out of the way uh they don't serve food but you know if um if you're looking for just a place to chill out and watch the uh watch the ball game i don't think you can do better than that and we're talking just west of oakland just north of north avenue yeah yeah you'd go down those two streets until you can't go any further what is the best time of day that someone should be there oh I don't know, early afternoon, I guess. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right. Well, our guest has been Matthew Priggy. He is a Milwaukee author, historian, and Brewers aficionado. If you're interested in him, check out everything on Herb Milwaukee related to City Beat. We'll have a link to his work. His new book, Damn the Old Tinderbox, is available at bookstores everywhere. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, man.